Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on Sunday, March 10th, 2013. Today's message is, How Would You Know If You Were Blind? by Pastor Isaac Whiting, based on Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 29. Let's pray together. Father God and Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would continue to be with us as we look at your word, that you would open it to us, and we ask this morning that you would open the eyes of the blind. Amen? Amen. When I became a Christian, when I first became a believer in Jesus Christ about 13 years ago, it felt to me like waking up from a long sleep, from a long dream. And ever since then, and actually I think in my whole life, even before that, it's been my ambition, it's been my goal to wake up from being asleep. When you're asleep, you're blind. You can't see when you're asleep because your eyes are closed. But often when you're asleep, you think that you can see. You think you know what's going on in the world and you have elaborate fantasies that are not real. Then when you wake up, and you open your eyes, you realize what's really going on and that it was all just a dream. We're looking today at Luke chapter 4, the passage where Jesus goes back to his hometown. And Luke tells us a lot more about this story than the other gospel writers. It's often called the Nazareth Manifesto. Jesus goes into his synagogue and preaches a sermon, reads a text from Isaiah. What we'll do this morning is I will go through this story and retell the story with a little bit of explanation so that we're all on the same page. And then afterwards, I'll bring three keys, three keys that will help unlock what this story means for us today at Ebenezer Baptist Church. The story comes at a point in the Gospel of Luke where the other Gospel writers put the words repent and believe. We've been doing a series and are continuing it today, a series on repenting and believing, the first message that Jesus ever preached and that he continued to preach throughout his ministry. We're doing this series while we're in Lent, the six weeks leading up to Easter where we need to remember to repent, to turn away from the wrong way and turn back to God. But at the place in the gospel where the other writers, particularly Matthew and Mark, put Jesus going around preaching repent and believe, Luke puts this story, the story of Jesus going to his hometown 
and preaching a sermon. It comes right after Jesus has been in the desert, being tempted by Satan. And he's come back into the region of Galilee, and he apparently has preached some other places and healed some people, although Luke doesn't tell us those stories. But word about him, news about him, has spread through the whole region. And then he decides to go to his hometown, to the town of Nazareth. I'd like to tell you a little bit about Nazareth. If I could have the first slide up, please. Nazareth does not appear anywhere in the Old Testament record. And in fact, Nazareth as a town, a village, did not exist in Old Testament times. So for a long time, in fact, some scholars argued that Nazareth was completely made up that it had never existed at all, and that the gospel writers had simply made it up out of thin air. Nazareth has, of course, since that time been discovered, but it was a very small town, just a few buildings, a wine press, a watchtower, some things like that. The reason that it didn't exist in the Old Testament period is that it was intentionally founded in the intertestamental period, the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. What you have on the screen there is a picture of Old Testament Israel in the time of the divided kingdom, so the time after Solomon, when the kingdom was divided into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. You'll see at the top of that the Assyrian Empire is up there looming to the north. And you remember that what eventually happened is the Assyrians came down and exiled all of the Israelites, that northern kingdom. Have you ever wondered why it is that Jesus and his family lived in Nazareth, a considerable distance north of where they were actually from, which was Bethlehem? Why did they live in Galilee if they were from Bethlehem. What happened is that after the Jewish people returned from exile, there was a period when they ruled themselves under a king or leader called Judas Maccabeus. Has anyone ever heard of him? Few people. During this time that they ruled themselves, it was the Jewish nation, so the tribe of Judah that had returned. But they believed that God was leading them to take over all the land that Israel had formerly occupied. And so what they did was they set up settlement communities. They sent settlers into the north, which had been repopulated with Gentiles, non-Jewish people, people who worshipped other gods. They sent settlers into this area with the idea that eventually they would grow and they would, their cities would get bigger and they would take over the region. Nazareth, very likely, was one of these settlement towns. People had been sent from Bethlehem, from the region where they lived, where they were from, about 150 years before Jesus was born, and had moved into the region of Galilee. This is important for the story we're looking at today, because Nazareth was a town, a village with a mission. Their mission was to displace the Gentiles. Their mission was to grow 
so that there would be more Jewish people in the region and the Gentiles would eventually either go away or become part of their culture. That was the mission of the village of Nazareth. And so in this story, Jesus arrives in his own hometown knowing, no doubt, that he's going to be rejected. And he does some incredible things when he gets there. First of all, he goes to church. An incredible thing. An incredible thing because Jesus, no doubt, disagreed with very much of what his church, his synagogue, would have been teaching. Not everything, but very much. But he goes there, and they decide to give him a hearing. Jesus has preached in other towns, and he is the one who's called upon to give the sermon, to do the scripture reading and give the sermon on this Sabbath day. Jesus is handed the scroll from Isaiah chapter 61, and either this was a miracle set up by God, or perhaps Jesus asked for this text on which to preach. We don't know. Now he reads from the scroll. He reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll, and he hands it back to the attendant, and he sits down. Now, when it says that he sits down, this doesn't mean that Jesus was finished. What happened in the synagogues in those days was that the person who was going to give the message or speak about Scripture, he would first stand to read the Scripture, and then he would sit down to deliver his message. So Jesus is sitting down, in this case, to begin speaking. Quite natural. But what he has just done in reading this Scripture is dramatic and radical because Jesus has actually altered the text of Isaiah chapter 61. And he's altered it to fit his particular sermon that he's about to preach. Imagine if someone got up to do a scripture reading in our church and they changed the Bible that they were reading from. They decided to mix in some verses from other parts of Isaiah and change some words. This is a radical thing for Jesus to do. And he arranges the text, and Luke, writing this gospel, arranges the text around it in a very particular way, a way that would have been understood by Jewish people, but is not necessarily understood by us. Can I have the second slide, please? Bear with me on this. If you like scholarly research, you may love this. If you don't, we'll get back to some story in just a minute. What we have here is the text from Luke chapter 4, the text that Jesus has read, a breakdown of it to show us exactly what is going on in the form that the text is written in. This text is written in a form that was known and happened often in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, a form uh, that we know as a chiasm. 
That might sound difficult to understand, but it's very simple. A chi is the Greek letter that looks like an X. And so a chiastic form like this is just a form of text that looks like an X. Well, how does it look like an X? An X first goes one way, and then it goes the other way. An X first goes one way, and then it goes the other way. So follow with me for a minute. At the beginning, you'll see the first line. It says that he entered uh, into the synagogue. And you see at the very end of the section, down there at the bottom, it says 3A at the very bottom line. It says, um, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. You see at the top in line 1B, Jesus stood up to read. And at the end of the section, Jesus sat down. You see at the top in line 1C, uh, the scroll or the book was given to him. And in line 3C, he gives it back to the attendant. And then in 1D, he unrolls the scroll. In 3D, he rolls the scroll back up. Do you see what Luke is doing? It's an intentional structure in the text. And it's important. It's not just for fun that we're looking at this. Then in the part that Jesus actually reads and speaks himself, he begins with a kind of introduction. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me. And then he makes his own X form. A, he has sent me to preach the good news to the poor. That parallels the last line, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And B, he sent me to proclaim to the prisoners freedom. And then that parallels with the line, he sent forth the oppressed in freedom. And there is one line that sits in the middle of the structure, kind of like the intersection in the letter X. And that line is the line that's highlighted. When you form this kind of a structure, that is the point. That's where you put the really big, important piece. And the important piece that Jesus wants to bring is recovery of sight to the blind. It's the line in the very center, and it has no companion. Jesus' sermon is about the blind recovering sight. And this is, in fact, the metaphor that Luke, in his gospel, uses most often in place of the metaphor of repenting. To repent, to turn to Jesus and believe, Luke views this as being blind and then gaining your sight back. I was blind, but now I see. So this is the point of Jesus' sermon, that he was sent as the Messiah so that the blind could see. Following this, Jesus gives some commentary and some intentionally offensive examples. Let me move this down real quick. Jesus tells the crowd or the synagogue that's gathered there, he says, first, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. A very bold claim. Everyone there knew this text and they understood it to be about the Messiah. 
So the opening line in his sermon is, I am the Messiah. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Next, he gives some examples. He says, I know you're going to want me to do here what I did in Capernaum to heal people, to bring in this, this great time that you expect the Messiah to bring in. But he tells them that he's not going to do that, and he gives them two examples. He gives them the example of Elijah healing a widow in Zarephath near Sidon. And he gives them the example of Elisha, Elijah's protege, disciple, healing Naaman the Syrian of his leprosy. Now these two examples are calculated to possibly to make the people of Nazareth mad or at least to shake them up an awful lot. First of all, these two examples come from the region that they are living in. Elijah and Elisha were prophets in Israel in the northern kingdom before the exile of the Israelites. And so these two examples come from the very region that they are sitting in at that moment. The people of the town of Nazareth must have seen those days as the good old days, right? The days when the people of Israel used to rule this whole region. Now we're surrounded by all these Gentiles and it's just a few of us who are here. Those were the good old days. And he says in these examples that the people who God healed, the people who are the examples of faith, are not the Israelites, but they are the Gentiles. The very people that the, the people of the town of Nazareth, it's their mission to replace. Those are the examples of faith that Jesus points to. At this point in the story, everyone gets very upset with Jesus and they drag him out of the synagogue and they try to throw him off a cliff. Just another day in the life for Jesus, I suppose. But miraculously, he's not thrown off the cliff. He somehow manages to just kind of walk through the crowd and he leaves the town. The point of this whole message, this whole story, as I've said already, is that Jesus came, Jesus the Messiah came to open the eyes of the blind, to make so that those who are blind could see. The question is, who are the blind? Three keys to understanding this text for us today. The first key, I'd like to go back and think about how amazing Jesus is. What kind of a man this is who could come into his own hometown and proclaim that he is the Messiah. How bold is this? He seems to have no fear in front of perhaps his own mother, in front of his brothers, in front of people that he grew up with. He doesn't shake. He, he's not afraid of them even when, they, uh, when they're all staring at him angry and ready to kill him. But he proclaims to them that he is the Messiah. But he doesn't do it like a crazy person 
running around the street saying, I'm the son of God, something like that. He does it with scripture. He does it with the Bible itself. Jesus, of course, was so radical that not only was he not accepted here, but he was not accepted by very many people anywhere he went. The difference in Nazareth is that almost no one accepts him because they were the closest to him. The second key that I'd like to talk about, who are the blind? It's hard to know if you're blind. When I became a Christian, actually just before I became a Christian, there was a story, a parable, not from the Bible, that captivated my mind for a long time. Maybe in some ways it still captivates me. And it was written by a philosopher named Plato. Have you heard of Plato? Perhaps written by Socrates, we don't know. And it's called the allegory or the parable of the cave. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the parable of the cave. Here's how the story goes. Imagine there's a people a people who are born chained to the wall of a cave. They're born chained to the wall of a long cave, and they're right down at the very end, where almost no light comes in from the outside. And the cave is a little bit curved, so that they can't actually see the exit to the cave. And they're born chained to the wall, all of them. Now, a little bit further up in the cave, about halfway to the outside, there's a fire that's burning that always burns. Don't ask who tends it. And between the people and the fire, different objects pass by, I guess by magic. They sort of float between the people and the fire. So where the people are, What they see all day as they're chained to the wall are shadows. They never see the actual objects because they're around the corner further up in the cave and they're chained to the wall. They never see the fire and they never see the exit. What they see are the shadows all day, every day. And so what these people do is they play a game. They play the shadow game. And in this game, they talk about the shadows, they give the shadows names, and they predict which shadows will appear next based on the shadows that have come previously. And their entire life, because they've never been out of the cave, their entire life and society is built around this game of predicting shadows. That is the real world to them, the shadows. Now, in the parable, someone comes into the cave from the outside, from the light. And this person goes to one of the cave dwellers and he breaks him free. 
But the cave dweller doesn't want to be free. He says, why are you pulling my arms down? Everyone has their arms up. I want my arms up too. But the person from the outside forces him to move from the wall and forces him to move up further into the cave. And when he sees the fire, he's terrified. And he says, this can't be real. Nothing like this exists in the real world. And he sees the real objects that the shadows, he's been seeing the shadows of these real objects his whole life. And he says, those can't be real either. The real things are all black and they're down there. And eventually this person from the outside drags this man into the light of the sun. And he's terrified and he falls down and it hurts his eyes. But after a while, maybe many days, this person becomes used to the light outside. And then he realizes what he was missing when he lived in the cave. And and he feels so bad for all of his people, so he goes back into the cave. He goes down, down, down past the fire and the objects, back to where his people are chained to the wall, and he tries to tell them, look, if if we can get you guys off of this wall, there's a whole world out there. The sun is out there. And they tell him he's crazy. These things are the real things. Get back on the wall. You've lost your mind. This is the story of the cave. And it captivated my mind for a long time. Being blind is like a fish in water. How would you know what water is if you've never left it? How would you know what the air means if you've never experienced anything but water? Jesus' message in his sermon to his own people is that they are the ones who are blind. This is why they become so angry. These are the people, the conservative, orthodox, believing people who are on a mission sent by God in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, no, you are blind. Not the Gentiles, not the people out there, but you are the blind who need to receive your sight. And this is a theme that happens over and over in the New Testament. That it's the people who are closest to God. The people who know the Bible. The people who pray the prayers. The people who go to the synagogues. Who are the ones who are the most in danger. Who are the blind that need to receive their sight. It is the Pharisees that Jesus goes after most often, isn't it? The Pharisees who are the most right-believing of anyone we find in the New Testament. They're the ones who believe that the Bible's true, that there really are angels, that there really is heaven and hell, that there really is a resurrection. They're the ones who believe, who later, many of whom will become Christians. They're the ones Jesus attacks the most. This is a constant theme in the New Testament, that it is those who are closest, who are the most in danger, who are the blind. 
What do we do with that? Can you see that it's us? Who are the blind who need to receive their sight? It's us. If there's anything that we can be certain of from the New Testament, we are most like the Pharisees, the ones who are close, the people of the town of Nazareth. It's us. We are here. We know the Bible. We believe it. We have a mission that's been given to us by God. And yet, we are the blind who need to receive our sight. The third key lies in these examples that Jesus has given to his people. As I said before, they are Gentile examples of faith. For us, that would be like non-believer examples of faith. Examples of faith in people who don't go to church or have anything to do with the Bible. Think about how radical these two examples are. In the one case, the widow of Zarephath, this is a person who lives in the region of Sidon, to the north of Israel. That means she is a worshiper of Baal. How many times does the Bible condemn the worship of Baal? And yet, this is the woman that God sends Elijah to. And when she is willing to step out in faith, you remember the story, Elijah wants her to give him the last bread that she has to live on. There's a famine in the land because of the drought. And she is willing to step out in faith and give Elijah the last of her bread. And when she does that, God saves her life by providing miraculous bread through the prophet Elijah. She is an example of faith, and it never even says that she stops worshiping Baal. It never even says that she begins worshiping God. She believes the prophet Elijah is true. She certainly believes in God in some sense, but she does not become an Israelite. What do we do with that? Or in the second case, Naaman the Syrian, an enemy of the Israelites, a man who worships, again, another pagan god, comes down. He's willing to take a step of faith by going and bathing in the Jordan River, and then he is healed by God when many of the Israelites were not. He's willing to step out in faith, and he's held up as an example of faith. He does profess belief in God, in the one true God, the Lord, but at the same time, he even says that he will have to continue worshiping his idols when he goes home, and he hopes that God will forgive him for that. These are the two people that Jesus holds up to his own town as examples of faith for them to consider and follow. What should we do with that? God is certainly at work. He's certainly at work among us. He's certainly at work outside the church. I don't know exactly what we should do with that, but we should consider it carefully.
In this story, Jesus has gone into his hometown. He has declared himself to be the Messiah. He has declared himself to be a Messiah who's not going to destroy the Gentiles and make them the slaves of the Israelites and bring the Israelites to conquer the whole land the way that his people thought he would. He's declared himself to be a Messiah who has come to restore the sight of the blind. And what his people cannot handle is that he thinks they are the blind who he has come to restore. Would you pray with me? Father God, please have mercy on us. As we go through this time of Lent, this time leading up to Easter, God, please help us to see. Help us to see what you're doing in the world. Help us to see where you're at and help us to be able to accept it. God, please help us to repent and please help us to believe. Thank you for sending Jesus, your son, to open our eyes. We pray this in his name. Amen.